Due to technical issues during the recording of this sermon by Dennis Olcom, we were unable to post the original recording, but have posted a backup. Our sincere apologies for the inconvenience. God's word made a perfect beginning. Humans spoiled the creation by sinning. We know the story when they stop the but it presses the other side of it. I think that little uh, poem is close to home for a lot of folks this morning. There are many times in our lives when it seems like the other side is winning. No matter how hard we try to convince ourselves that the good guys are winning it. I mean, I'm sure that Jonah Baptizer felt that way, uh, asking himself, you know, if Jesus is who he says he is, what the sad hell am I doing if I were to get my head chopped off? Now, I'm sure I do. Uh, I know people. Some people are asking this kind of question this morning. Uh, on short-term mission trips to Sudan, I've heard a similar question, but that's by thousands of people every day. People who ask themselves why they were born in such a repressive government under repressive conditions. I'm sure there are thousands of migrants who are fleeing Syria and Afghanistan today who are asking that, let alone the thousands who can't even leave Syria and Afghanistan. These experiences of the night of Maybe some of you today, maybe some of you know, are asking these kind of questions. You know, why does this happen to me? What did I do to deserve this? Why is it that the Christian is the one who suffers the loss of a child and a spouse, who loses the job, who contracts cancer, who's involved in heart condition, who's passed over for a promotion while a less evident colleague continues? And then the question gets more serious. When we find ourselves asking, as Matthew did at the beginning of our reading this morning, does God even know this? Does God even care? I'm thinking about it. The list of questions that go on and on. And I don't have the answers to this morning. Reading Job for the last couple of weeks in the morning didn't help me either. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever read Psalm 88, but that's not going to do it for you either. I mean, Christians don't always have the answers to why they're suffering. But unlike all other religions, Christians do believe that God has entered into our suffering. Even if we can't answer all the why questions this morning, I think we can learn from what we've heard in the back how to respond to trials and suffering that get worse and worse and just go on. See, Habakkuk uh, was kind of a spokesperson for the righteous people in Judah, who begins by asking God how God can allow so much corruption and injustice to go on and on in Judah without doing something about it. That's the first few verses in our text. And to this, God replies, I don't know if you were listening, but there's a dialogue and God replies, starting in verse 5, that he's going to do something about it. He's going to do something unbelievable. Something that I wouldn't even understand. He's going to send those ruthless Babylonians to wipe out Judah. Now, this really has a back itself. 
surrounded by people who love and I would find myself eating the casserole then. Sometimes giving thanks can lead to a response of thankfulness. Waiting for, waiting for the move swing to kick in before I rejoice to give thanks is like the woodcutter. You know, we stood by the tree with his axe ready to work up a sweat and break that down the tree. Often we have to act ourselves in the feeling rather than feel ourselves in the act. Often we have to act ourselves in the feeling rather than feel ourselves in the act. Now going into this acting again, what we learn from this example in three short chapters is that rejoicing and giving thanks has to come from certain theological convictions that we hold rather than coming out of the circumstances that surround us. If we're going to rejoice always and give thanks in everything, we will need to be bolstered by certain Christian convictions. And we know that. We, we know this. Because the same sort of thing happens when we set up a program of physical exercise. Now, if we always wait for the right circumstance or the need to, uh, to exercise, I think our clothes would begin to be a little bit tight on. But certain convictions about the benefits of exercise, so our determination, you know, to gyrate and contort our bodies for a half an hour on clothes, without the beliefs about the benefits of physical exercise, we would not exercise very often. And the same way, certain Christian convictions or beliefs strengthen our resolve to rejoice in all things, or to give thanks in all things, no matter how bad things get. Once read a pianist cartoon in which Lucy and Linus were looking out of a window at a rainstorm. And Lucy remarks, oh, look at that rain. But what if it floods the whole world? And, you know, self-assured Linus, he answers, it will never do that. In the ninth chapter of Genesis, God comes to God that that will never happen again. And the sign of the promise is the rainbow. And then Lucy decides, you've taken a great load off my mind. <laughs> and Linus replies, sound theology has a way to do it. <laughs> <laughs> well, like Habakkuk and, and Linus, we've got to have some sound theology. We've got to know who God is and who we are in relationship to that God. And so notice this about that. The first thing he does, the first thing he does after complaining is what it, it, this is what he does. He calls to mind the character of the God to whom he complained. Before back it comes to understand how God can use wicked people to transform those more righteous, he praises God for who God is. He takes a moment to remind himself just who and what God is. And this is the point. This is the point. What you think about God will have a decisive effect on the way you think about yourself. What you think about God will have a decisive effect on the way that you think about yourself. For example, Habakkuk reminds himself that God cannot look upon the world. God will have nothing to do with it. 
And that sentence is found in a slightly different way in the book of James. James insists that God is the giver of good gifts and good gifts only. And he tempts no one with evil. Now, be sure God disciplines. He's a loving God and he disciplines his own people from time to time to develop into the muscles of the soul. I mean, after God that is love being content with us the way we are, is to ask that God not be God. But even when God disciplines his children, it's not his wish that they should suffer you. God is in the celestial killjoy. God's no heavenly saints. And we should realize that every time we pray the Lord's Prayer during the Eucharist, and when we pray for God's kingdom to come on earth as it has already been established in heaven, we pray that because we believe that the coming of God's kingdom involves defeat of disease and pain and suffering and death and accidents. That is God's perfect will for his children. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. God 
is working behind the sky. And notice what else Habakkuk does to get from point A to point B. He, he prepares himself to hear what God has to say to him. At the beginning of chapter 2. There comes a time, you see, when we have to be still and hear what God says. We've got to stop our complaining and questioning long enough to hear what God has to say to us regarding our suffering. We need a joke about that. It takes the 38 chapters with his friends. But he finally does it. Habakkuk says this, I will stand at my watchpost. I will station myself on the rampart. I will keep watch to see what he will say to me. The fact that referring to there is a, is a custom in those days. When the watchman of the city would, uh, would, would ascend up to the top of the tower in order to see who might be coming toward the city. And so I think the prophet is saying is that to hear God, I need to get away and get a broader perspective. I need to get a broader perspective on things. I, I need to collect my thoughts quietly. I need to reflect on the testimonies of God. I need to meditate on the things of God. Reveal God's interventions in my life in the past. And seek the advice of friends and, and family through whom God can minister to me. I remember uh, reading this first time and having this first part of chapter 2 come home to me forcefully when I was looking down at Chicago, the greatest United States in my opinion, from the observation deck of what used to be called the Sears Tower. I remember standing in the relevant quiet above the member of the city streets looking straight out of the cars, trying desperately to find a parking space. I could see them. I could see the parking spaces. They were just two or three blocks down. If only those folks had had my perspective, spaces they could not see, because they could not quietly survey the city from my perspective. See, I think a lot of times God's perspective on our trials and sufferings only comes when we're quiet enough to listen to the one who knows all and sees part The fact is told that those who are more righteous, that those who are righteous must respond to their trials and their sufferings by continuing to be faithful, to trust in God. No matter how long it takes, no matter how much it takes to endure the trials. And folks, this is our fight. Here it comes. But don't be discouraged. This is the hard part because what's important isn't how solid your faithfulness is. What's important is how solid the object of your faith is. It's a bit like walking down a frozen pond. And you can be extremely confident that the ice is thick. But in reality, it's thin. No matter how much you believe it's thick, as you walk on it, you will get extremely wet. On the other hand, you can be as timid as all get as you start walking on that ice. Even though in reality, the ice may be very thick and dependent and you'll stay very dry. And the more that you walk on it, 
the more you realize just how thick and dependable that ice is, and the more confident you will grow, not because of your faith, but because your experience continues to show you just how reliable the object of your faith is. That's why it's so important to take the time to get to know the character of God. Because just as you would continue to get to know how reliable and how thick the ice is as you walk on, the more you get to know God as the giver of goodness, the better you'll be able to face your problems with confidence in that mind. The one thing that you can, you and I cannot afford to do this morning, though, is to react to our total world suffering with bitter resentment that forever has a chip on its shoulder and a grudge against God. Because if we turn our back on God when things are at their worst, then to whom will you turn? Hopefully not to ourselves. Habakkuk tells us in that same verse, chapter 2, verse 4, that those who depend solely on their own resources will fail, just as the Babylonians who relied on their own military strength would certainly fall. The only saving reaction to our suffering is to go on living and working, knowing that Jesus is present in our suffering, experiencing our pain with us, and will give us the courage and strength to get through. And finally, good theology doesn't just remind us of who God is, it reminds us of who we are in relationship to that God. And rejoicing and giving thanks to God expresses that relationship as no other activity in our lives when we thank God, we are expressing the fact that we are in dependence on God for everything that sustains our daily lives. We're, we are finding people whose, whose lives are hanging by a thread. And so we naturally fear when bad things happen to us. That's natural. Now, back in experiences, too, did you, did you hear that in chapter 3? He says, My body is kind of. My lips are quivering. My steps are deepening. How can, how can you be afraid and trusting at the same time like that, Habakkuk? Because that very human response reminds us that we are not self-sufficient creatures that we think we are at times. That we will not live well and long just because we live right. In fact, sometimes it takes a calamity in our lives to remind us of that. When things are going well for us, as they were for Israel in the days of Jeroboam and Seth, we can fall into this, the trap of assuming that we're in control of our lives. In the day, the rich were getting richer, and the nation was making a long way to come back. But the prophets, Amos and Hosea, had reminded the people that, yeah, and the poor are getting poorer, and the nation had forgotten all even though in our own religious traffickers. And how much, how much we are like Israel in prosperity, we forget how dependent and finite we really are. Our lives hang by a thread. You may think that money, or food, or a fine house, or prestige, or the GSA, or the world's most powerful armed force, makes us strong. But the realization of our mortality has a way of giving a death blow to that misconception. 
times of stress like I have experienced, maybe even like we experienced at 9-11. In the midst of a crisis in our lives, we're told that back in reality of our human frailty and hopefully to grateful dependence on God that we express in rejoicing in giving things. Because that's why, that's why it's often hard to give thanks when things are going well. It's hard to give thanks when things are going well. But sometimes easier to give thanks than rejoice when all is going bad. I mean, you can only say thank you, God, if you know your daily existence depends on God. See, saying thank you is another way of saying, I'm not self-sufficient. I can think of no better example of this. And I want to conclude with this. The man who penned the words of the hymn that our family sang every night at the dinner table before we ate that to a castle. Martin Rieger. Martin Rieger, a 17th century pastor in the town of Heidelberg during the brutal Thirty Years' War, one of the worst wars that we've ever faced in its history. Heidelberg had become a wall of refuge for the worst homeless and hungry. As soon as it became overcrowded, just, just like stopping today in some parts of Europe, it became overcrowded, famished, unsanitary, disease infested. It reached its worst during the pestilence of 1637. Officials and clergymen either died or ran away and left town. They did not drinker alone as a clergyman to care for the dead. It's been said that uh, there were days when he conducted 40 to 50 funerals. Finally, the death rate was so overwhelming that they, they just buried the bodies in the trenches without service. 8,000 people died in all, including Rinker's wife. And then came the Austrians and the Swedes, who sacked the city three times, later demanded a heavy tribute from the people. And eventually, Rinker's finances were strained, his body wore out, and he died at the age of 63. And yet, during the worst part of all of this, Rinker maintained a strong faith in God. And he wrote this hymn of thanksgiving to be sung after meals in his household. Now thank we all our God with heart and hands and voices who wonders things have done in whom our world rejoices. May this bounteous God through all our lives be near us with ever joyful hearts and show peace to cheer us and keep us in his grace and guide us when perplexed and free us from all ills in this world and the next. I think Brainerd knew it the lack that one masters the art of rejoicing and giving thanks to all things only when one sincerely believes that our frail human existence ultimately depends on the God who has proven to be faithful in the past and who will be unreliable in the future. One last thing. You might be saying, God, God, how can I believe that God is faithful when things in my life are going so badly? Aren't you asking me to believe in something that's absurd?
But that's precisely why we gather here every Sunday, Sunday after Sunday, to hear the testimonies of God's work in His people's lives, and to rehearse the stories of God's faithfulness to all of His children from the time of Adam right down to the time of the Holy Trinity Church. In fact, every week in our celebration of the Eucharist, we remember the greatest of all the stories of God's faithfulness, the story of the Father's faithfulness to His Son, who cried out on the cross during the time of the worst possible suffering that any of us could ever imagine. My God, my God, why me? Why have you forsaken me? And it was answered three days later, three days of silence, in a way that gives us confidence that God will answer our cry as well. I encourage you to just take a few moments Think about those testimonies that you've heard from people who have experienced that faithfulness. Maybe testimonies even in your own life, your own past. Dwell on those and be able to rejoice 